Hey, this is Stacy, and uh, I'm here with Molly Sumridge, and we're going to be talking about the um, the benefits of nose work for the reactive dog. And Molly, I'm just going to give you uh, introduce you a little bit, and then you know we can just get start chatting if that works for you. Sounds great. Looking forward to it. Okay. All right. So Molly is the uh, the founder of Kindred Companions um, out of Frenchtown, New Jersey, and she's a certified dog behavior consultant with the IAABC and uh, really, you know, knows a whole ton about dog behavior and everything. And, and not to mention, she's a really good friend of mine. So I, you know, take any chance <laughs> I can to, um, you know, to chat, chat with her. So um, I thought, you know, for our first, first guest, I thought Molly would be a good, uh, you know, a good ad for this one. And so, so Molly, um, kind of, you know, I know I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. If that's okay. No worries. Okay, good. Um, you know, I, I'm, you know me, I, I have two reactive dogs. I've got Joey and I've got Y. And mm -hmm. interestingly, you know, Joey is very visually reactive, but he actually gets more aroused um, than any kind of, um, like, like fear-related, you know, fear-related reactivity, if you get my drift. Mm-hmm. Where, Absolutely. Yeah, where Y is kind of, he's a little bit more on the, the fear side of it. And mm -hmm. you know, what I've noticed since I started doing nose work, Y has gotten a lot better. Um, he's, Fantastic. Yeah, and, and he's actually to the point where I hardly consider him reactive at all. Wow, that's that's big. That's huge. Congratulations. Well, thank you. Thank you. Um, it's, <laughs> yep. I mean, he used to do the lunging, barking thing, and now basically, you know, I can park him in the uh, in the non-reactive area with the in nose work, and you know, not really have to worry at all. I mean, he's he's gotten pretty fabulous. I mean, I don't we don't do you know dog to dog interactions, but you you know you don't do that in nose work anyway. Um, but I wanted to kind of, you know, pick your brain a little bit and find out, you know, why, why is that? Why did my dog get better? You know, I, I haven't specifically done any, um, you know, a whole lot of effort in turn of, you know, I probably shouldn't, you know, say this on the air, but I probably really, <laughs> I really haven't done a whole lot. Um, no, uh, but actually I think that makes it a great baseline. I mean, I don't yeah. think there's any harm in you having not done any other desensitization or counter conditioning protocols because this kind of gives us an honest at least one dog's honest experience with coping with reactivity and experiencing nose work in a therapeutic way so no i think i think your observations are absolutely valid okay okay but i i just don't know why that is i mean you know i know a little bit about dog behavior but i'm not you know i'm not a certified dog behavior consultant like yourself and Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and you've, you've done that, you've got, you know, your sea baddie, you know, you're like, you do a whole lot of stuff <laughs> like that. And that's kind of like your thing. Um, you know, my thing is sniffing. Yeah. If you want to talk about well, sniffing, I can talk about sniffing. sniffing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm all about the sniffing. No, yeah. that's, that's cool. I mean, that's sort of, I guess, to sort of jump in and answer your question. Um, looking at the act of sniffing for its therapeutic value is still pretty new. Um, I mean, nose work as a competitive recreational sport, I guess, is also kind of in its infancy in the last, I don't know, what has it been, like six, seven years, I guess, yeah, it's been going around something, more and more? Something, yeah, something I mean, like given, that. I mean, yeah, like professional nose work, I mean, it's been, been around for quite some time, but I think that this is actually allowing us to see the effects more readily. Uh, before nose work became something that 
dogs could really participate in. We were using nose work, uh, or not nose work, we were using sniffing um, and its therapeutic um, elements generally as a decompression exercise. So if we were doing uh, desensitization and counter-conditioning protocol, usually it's used to help dogs come back down if they're starting to get too close to a threshold. It might be something for a dog to do if they're about to do something that is very conditioned for arousal, say getting out of a car. Okay. Um, so one of the exercises we might do for a dog like that is we would sprinkle treats on the ground right at the base of the door. Okay. So that when the owner opens it, the dog immediately hits the ground and is sniffing around for the treats. So they're getting the therapeutic element of sniffing, they're getting the positive reinforcement of the food, and they're, we're breaking down what is normally a very arousing trigger, which is hit the ground and where are the things I need to bark at. Right. So, you know, we've used it as a distraction tool like that in the past. And then, you know, with the growing of things like bat and other, you know, desensitization protocols that have, you know, names attached to it, sniffing has increased more and more. It'll be, you know, sniffing is no reward location. You know, there's sprinkled treats in here. Um, things like that is usually how we've been applying it. But never as the majority of the dog's interaction around triggers. So that's where I find this fascinating and interesting because if that's the bulk of the dog's interactions, it really shows the therapeutic and desensitizing value of perceiving triggers and stimuli while sniffing. So that's where I, I get excited about it. Yeah, and, you know, interesting because, um, you know, why is obviously he's not doing nose work around other dogs? And, you know, and that's always mm -hmm. been kind of the the whole, um, you know, the whole thing about why it's, you know, nose work is so good for reactive dogs because, it's, you know, dogs don't have to do this around, mm -hmm. um, around other dogs. But what I've noticed, I mean, in classes he sees other dogs, mm -hmm. and then he goes and he does his um, – his sniffing right so he finds his his odor and then he goes back to the car and you know and i've i've incorporated a lot of um i do before parties i do after parties you know it's it's a big it's a big thing because I, I don't want to go in you know do nose work and then put him just put him in a crate because i feel like that's kind of a punishment um so sure. we do a lot of a lot of positive reinforcement and i i have a feeling all this together has really affected his reactivity Sure. Well, I mean, if we look at reactivity, reactivity is fear and or overstimulation that takes a dog beyond its arousal or stress point to the point of reacting in a way that usually, if it's fear-based, makes the scary thing go away. It's distance-increasing behavior. Right. Now, if he finds that sniffing does not make the scary stimuli come any closer and has the therapeutic effect of helping the dog relax and using so much of its brain, which is, I think, some of the theories that are out there. Yeah. Um, it's almost like horse blinders, if you want to say that. Um, and I think, you know, why is an intelligent boy? He may not see dogs, but he can certainly smell that they were there. Right. He can hear them off in the distance. So he knows that they're present. Right. Even if they're not visually stimulating. And so he's getting that nice therapeutic sniff in. He's... And it's also, I think, the positive repetition. Again, it's, I think one of the mistakes we make in a lot of behavior modification is we say the trigger has to be present, and we have to somewhat see some sort of reaction going on for us to feel like we're making a change, mm -hmm. especially when we work with clients and owners. Because yeah. if the client doesn't think their dog is at all challenged, then how can they be experiencing behavior modification? How can this be getting better if I'm not seeing the problem? Right, right. But, yes. But with nose work, we're never seeing the problem. We're not supposed to see the problem. Nose work is just about nose work. 
But the dog is so under threshold that it's really a peripheral response that the dog is having and saying, okay, yeah, I know this dog's present, but I'm having this really great therapeutic experience, so it's really just background noise. And, you know, through all of that very, very helpful desensitizing repetition, he's like, oh, yes, dog. Yeah, I'm okay with dogs. I, I realize I'm cool with dogs. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and then, um, and then, you know, I'm all about the, you know, I, I'm, I'm, actually, I did a, a, like, a mini pod this morning, and we were talking about, like, what is nose work, and I talked about what are the tools of the trade, which is the nose, right? Now, mm-hmm. interestingly, the nose um, uh, or the, the olfactory portion of the brain, of the canine brain, is one-eighth of the brain. It's 12.5%. Wow. So, yeah, A lot of brain. Yeah, literally, they are walking noses, right? <laughs> so the dog is a walking nose. They live their life through their nose. Mm-hmm. And they're using such a large portion of their brain. I'm wondering, and you know, I'm just kind of um, hypothesizing, right? I mean, this isn't necessarily in, um, you know, grounded in science or anything like that, but sure. I'm wondering if the the amount of exertion that the dog is going through just to sniff and process and look for target mm-hmm. odor is enough to bring down that arousal. Oh, I would say absolutely. I mean, even yeah. without a paper to, to, to pull from, uh, we can see it in other things. Say, for instance, we, we recommend puzzle toys for the same thing. They may not be sniffing. They may be just trying to bat it around. But we'll use those as a therapeutic distraction, say, in a household where there's just a lot of background stress. So there's lots of small children running around. Food, food toys like that are, are therapeutic for that. Okay. Um, or another great example is dogs with canine with a CCD, with canine cognitive dysfunction. Oh, so yeah. thinking, about, thinking about those dogs, when we give them puzzles, especially food toys, that increases oxygen flow to the brain, that improves the symptoms of CCD. So it's completely believable that the act of smelling, which is, like you said, using 12% of the brain, would be so therapeutic for emotionally stimulating things. That, this is fascinating. I mean, this is, I'm, I'm really learning <laughs> a ton here. No, I know, I really am. I really am. Because, cool. Because I've been kind of thinking about, you know, why has why... Um, you know, why has why? Why why has why? This sounds... Why is a dog's name? I should probably state that. <laughs> why is the dog's name? So, why has why gotten so much better when I haven't actually done any counterconditioning or desensitization? But kind of what you're saying is I really have. Yes, because the act of sniffing with the dog in the background, I would consider totally an act of desensitization we're not applying food to the trigger yeah but the trigger is background noise while the dog is so under threshold that they're perceiving it and they're working through it without having to be very conscious of it so absolutely i think um that's still desensitization but i think what we're hitting on here is that most of the time when we use these protocols the trigger is present and the trigger is probably way closer than it needs to be okay but we do that to satisfy the client or the trainer okay and we, we want to see something. I mean, I, I think Grisha Stewart co- coined it well when she talked about that, and she says you should not see anything happening. It should look like the dog is just going for a walk. Well, nose works the same. And, I mean, well, I think you know, when I spoke to you recently, you said you, know, you did a lot of training with Y at home yes. even, that it wasn't a lot of ink. And I think that's powerful, too, because I see a lot of nose work classes with semi-reactive dogs. They all have barriers, and they all have, um, like, sheets up. 
And some of those dogs are still barking and they're still over threshold. So I don't think those dogs are having a therapeutic effect as the dogs like you did with Y, where he had as much space as he needed from triggers and distractions, and that's what allowed him to work through a lot of this. You know, you're reading my mind because I was literally going to ask you about that. No, no, I'm being completely serious. I was going to ask you about that because all of his initial nose work training I did at home. You know, I didn't introduce him into a class until he had a really good solid foundation and he was actually working all of his, all of the elements. And, you know, we were preparing for NW1. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, so that, what I mean is your goal was completely separate for behavior modification, so therefore you weren't trying to test and rush behavior modification. You were waiting for an entirely different solid set of skills, which was nose work, right. before applying that to his triggers and stimuli and the background effect of the dog who was more confident, knew how to self-soothe, um, knew how to regulate how he felt due to his excitement and arousal for nose work. So you dealt with a lot of the BMOD issues of arousal and you know like we're talking about threshold just with nose work right and that seems to have translated nicely as you and because nose work is when you are competing or you are in these environments the dogs are still rare if you're careful then yes it was very therapeutic in how you incidentally added dogs to his world oh wow that this is like so i ended up i did the right thing without knowing it yes you Uh, totally did fantastic because you weren't a greedy dog trader who just wanted to watch their dog, you know, well, are they better? Oh, no, they're not better. They fail. Oh, okay. Possibly re-traumatizing the dog. Okay, so you're talking about kind of like doing that behavior modification where you're bringing that stimulus kind of in in sight so that the dog goes over threshold. Is that kind of what you're referring to? Yeah, we're we're wielding the stimulus. Um, For instance, you know, growly dog classes. I run a growly dog class. Lots of people have reactive rover classes, and that's dogs in the presence of their triggers, yes. either in a building with barriers or outside with space. But the triggers are still absolutely there. And, you know, you're trying to use the trigger as what you're using to counter condition against, but it's not necessarily going to be a therapeutic environment. Dogs are definitely going to go over threshold. And what this makes me think about is, should we be working even farther away? Should right. we be working with even more, you know, stimulus-based exercises? So puzzles, things like that, not operant skills, which put the dog's brain in a completely different prefrontal cortex region, right. but things that are more, oh, I'm doing puzzles, and oh, I'm playing games, and oh, a dog went by 30 yards in the distance. You, the dog knows it's there. We just don't feel satisfied if the dog doesn't look or react, but... Clearly, it is, you know, it does make a difference when we do it that way. Okay. So, so this is kind of making me think that if we have a reactive dog, odds are if you get that foundation of those skills at home before mm-hmm. introducing them into a class environment, that they actually might be more successful. No, I would say that. And I think this is a nice alternative because a lot of trainers come at this either from uh, manners and obedience foundation. So it's teaching operant skills. So you depend on the dog staying in operant mode, even when the trigger's present, which is very hard. Eventually, the dog goes over threshold and will react. We do it in pure conditioning mode, where you're just trying to support the animal, and if the animal does start to overstress, you have them leave, Right. you know, create space. But this is sort of a third rung. This is saying, we're going to have you do lots of really great, fun, you know, you know, 
enriching, there's a good word, okay. <laughs> enriching exercises. Um, and there is a trigger, but so far out there that the most you might get is a sniff or an ear flick. Right. Like, it is not on the animal's radar at all. And, right. I mean, there are human therapies that are similar enough to this that I, I would believe it. Unfortunately, there just isn't the data and the science, but this is a really interesting direction to consider. Yeah. So we might actually be forging new uh, for, for, forging new paths here. Absolutely. I mean, well, that's what it takes. It takes a question. It takes a hypothesis. Right. And then it takes, you know, some really great data, um, trying to plan how to make it as, as neutral as possible. And hopefully, you know, more advances in things like anthrozoology and animal behavior will create scenarios where this data can be collected, you know, purely on a scientific level, maybe even do some things like heart monitors and um, stress level testing and see, you know, if we even have those numbers to go along with it. But it is interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. But then it, then it makes me think, okay, so this has really been successful for why. So I go to my other reactive dog, Joey. Mm-hmm. Now, Joey, um, just so for everybody who's listening, um, Joey is a standard poodle. He's a nine-year-old standard poodle. He gets, he is not aggressive. Like, if he if he meets a dog off-leash, he's very, he actually has very good dog skills. Um, mm-hmm. His issue is when he sees a dog, he gets visually, I this is what I think. I think it's like an overstimulation. Um, mm-hmm. And he just kind of, you know, he'll fly off the handle if he's not managed. So now, sure, I haven't necessarily seen, from his perspective, I haven't seen the, um, uh, the obvious huge improvement that I've seen in Y. I think I have seen improvement in Joey. I mean, he's able to go to trials. He's able to trial. You know, he has his NW1. He's going for his NW2. Um, so I have seen improvement. I just haven't seen it as dramatic as why. And I don't know if it's because of the type of reactivity that Joey has versus why. Um, and again, I'm just kind of thinking out loud here. Well, sure. Well, reactivity is a reaction to stimuli. So reactivity can be fear-based. You know, I react because I want you to leave. And then there's reactivity that is just impulse control based and frustration based. Um, you know, that's what barrier frustration or barrier aggression many times is. It's frustration. It's not, it's I want to get there, not that I don't want you coming near me or something like that. Now, if we, if I, you know, I, I only know Joey so well, but if I look at it from, let's say, a frustration angle, just because it's convenient, and nose work could be teaching him impulse control and focus. Okay. So that would improve those elements of his reactivity. However, it may not improve things like leash frustration if, or restraint frustration if that's an element of it because that was never addressed. Okay. Um, or it may not deal with as much impulse control as we'd like because it teaches an impulse control in scenarios that are similar to nose work, but it's not. it wouldn't be addressing it in real-life scenarios. So, I mean, there's different elements certainly to every yeah. dog's reactivity and their triggers. But certainly I think from a, a fear, a genuine fear and anxiety and stress-based, it seems very therapeutic just in and of itself, whereas if the dog is aroused or emotional with other animals for joyous, non-fear-based reasons, yeah. then we would be approaching it from a different different angle. Well, I, I think you actually just hit the nail on the head when you compared my two dogs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, because, you know, why is um, he's definitely more of a fear-based 
reactivity mm-hmm. where Joey is more of a frustration-based reactivity. Um, sure. And that, I mean, there's still yeah. reactions and they're still very valid. It's just they, their, their world is shaped very differently. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. They're, yeah. And again, this is, you know, and I wanted to, you know, I wanted to have this conversation because I, I have seen such a big difference in why. And it was one of these things where I, I keep telling people, you know, nose work is really good for the reactive dog. And I haven't been able to articulate why that is. Mm-hmm. And I might even say things like nose work is really good for the fearful reactive dog. Not to say it's not for the frustration-based dog, but for frustration-based dogs, I would, you know, if I, if I had somebody come to me and we started as behavior modification protocols started including nose work. Somebody came to me for a fearful dog. I'd be like, great, food toys, nose work, really far background stimuli. Again, we don't want to see the dog reacting at all. I see a frustration-based dog, and I may be using nose work as motivation, focus, increase impulse control, dogs in the background while he's being asked to work so he learns how to, you know, mix his attention and hold it together. But I'd also be including way more things like obedience and using things like nose work possibly as a reward to say, oh, you see that dog over there? That's great, but go over there and do your job. Okay. So creating a little bit more um, discipline and emotional elasticity there instead of becoming fixated and then getting lost in that, that, that frustration element. So, I mean, you, it would certainly still be part of it. You just have to tweak sort of where it lives in the protocol. So, so it's really around the how, the how you, yes. how, how you would apply it. Yes, because it would have different effects to different animals, whereas certain animals it would be therapeutic and it would be emotionally stimulating and be calming. For other dogs, it may just be purely a reward. Gotcha. It might be interesting. Gotcha. Like my singing dog would probably never find it emotionally therapeutic but he does find it fascinating and i could ever i could use it as motivation and concentration and focus training for him well you know we are going to make him the first new guinea singing dog to get a, a nose work title <laughs> kitty <laughs> sent me the pictures yes. by the way of him on the picnic table yeah. oh um, oh my gosh yes i guess you should say we should say that for those listening um we had a match uh kindred companions had a match and stacy was our amazing judge and she did a lecture for us and we loved it and i trained my singer over 20 minutes probably over two sessions based on stacy's really great um foundation (laughs) methods and i decided oh why not i'll just see what he does and i was very proud of seeing my boy climb on a picnic table and wrap his head underneath the bench and tell me he found the odor it was pretty cool (laughs) i nearly had a heart attack when you tell me how how short of a time he'd been on odor but um, yeah, but no, I, I think that's great. Fantastic. I mean, it, that's yeah. Fantastic. Well, it also attributes to how sometimes lazy dog training um, <laughs> can work. Um, I'm not certainly advocating people at home just you know throw odor at their dog and hope that they're going to care about it. But there's something to be said for the resiliency of our dogs. <laughs> I, absolutely, absolutely, and the intelligence. They make us look good. And the intelligence. They're um, they're really something special. So yeah. this gets me to another question. Sure. It's kind of follow-on question. So you were, you, you know, you've mentioned a little bit about being in an operant state of mind. And, you know, we've mm-hmm. talked about, you know, maybe, you know, if you've got a reactive dog, especially if you're a reactive dog, you know, maybe starting them at home, training them at home if you have um, the capability to do so. Um, what about, uh, this, this is this whole, you know, operant versus classical conditioning. You know, there are a couple mm-hmm. different ways of training nose work which by the way as a nose work trainer i have to say they all work 
So I just want to well, put, put that yes. out there. And they're also always all there. I mean, there's the saying that, you know, both are on your, that Pavlov and, and Skinner are on both shoulders. Like both of them will always be present, operant and classical. Right. It just depends on how deeply invested and what you're focusing on in that moment. Okay. Okay. So, you know, maybe we can, um, can we explain that a little bit to folks who might not have a lot of like the learning behavior background to kind of understand a little bit kind of like, like what, like what you mean by them, sure. by them both being on, on Absolutely. So, so operant-based learning is cause and effect learning. A plus B equals C. So, you know, for instance, when we talk about positive reinforcement-based training, there's one quadrant of operant-based learning. And then applications of things like punishment or trying to, you know, take things away or add things, those are all parts of operant-based learning, and that equal that either makes the behavior increase or decrease, but it's on a cognitive level. The animal understands what happened and why, and therefore whether or not continuing the behavior is valuable or not. Now, classical conditioning is associative learning. When I see that thing, I feel good, or I'm fed every time this thing happens, and therefore there's an emotional connection with that association. We're going to talk about Pavlov and his dog and the implication of food in a bell equals the bell in salivation. Right. So that's what I mean by associative learning. Um, and usually has a deep emotional association. It's not really a cognitive association. It's sort of like for a human, um, a negative one might be if you were ever, ever forbidden a car accident and you drove past that site again later on in life, you may feel queasy or anxious. You know you're safe, you know you're okay, but you still have that association, that emotional classical association with that location. So that's actually um, interesting, like, you know, your point about having that negative classical association, that you could have that mm -hmm. as well. Because I think a lot of times oh, we absolutely. always think about positive associations, we don't necessarily think about negative associations. Absolutely, and I mean, I think sometimes we struggle with not realizing when a negative association is there, too. Uh, you know, when I work with behavior modification and, and an owner tells me, you know, oh, their dog has challenges with X, Y, and Z, but then I realize that, you know, their own street, maybe their dog has been attacked, it's mm -hmm. going to be much harder to help their pet feel, you know, have positive results on their street, for instance, than if we train in a completely neutral place because there's a conditioned emotional feeling in that vicinity until we're able to work on that and lessen that. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's a traumatic almost level to it. Okay. I mean, if you want to you use that word loosely, <laughs> I'm not using that in any official terminology, but there's certainly a traumatic effect. And then there's also a really great positive emotional effect, like when you hear your cell phone text message tone go off and you go, ooh, I want to see that. That's also classical conditioning, usually in the positive. Mm -hmm. um, although for most millennials, it's probably negative when the phone rings because who answers the phone anymore? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, so, but, so, yeah, so, so when you're saying your, that they're your, on yeah. both shoulders, mm -hmm. so so, is, so they're they're both always present. Okay. Uh, but to different degrees. So if you're working on a cog, so if you're working on an operant skill, let's say you're working on system down, the dog is understanding that if they sit, uh, when you say sit or they stay, they're going to possibly get a positive reward, or if they move, maybe they won't. And that's no fun, so they're not going to do that. But also, during that process, there's classical conditioning going on. They're classically being conditioned to being comfortable in that body position. They're being conditioned to working with you. They're being classically conditioned to 
the environment that they're working in, all of those things are going on while the dog is having an offering experience because of a positive association or a negative association. If somebody, say, very harshly corrected the dog, they may also attribute it to, well, they've been very harshly corrected, say, in this park many, many times, so the animal could be more stressed the next time you bring them there. So that's what I mean by sort of the two are always present. You're always making an emotional connection while you're making a cognitive connection. Okay, okay. So it's, um, and then having them both on, you know, the fact that you can't divorce the two, if mm -hmm. you're doing something that's primarily on the classical conditioning, you still have some offering conditioning um, kind of there too, right? Absolutely. So okay. if I was trying to work more classically, if I was trying to deal with an emotional state of a dog, um, and I wasn't paying attention to the fact that every time I was rewarding the dog for, say, looking at a trigger or, say, another dog, and the dog was backing up, the dog may go, oh, I like backing up because I've been given food while I'm watching this other dog. Okay. Um, there's, there's always the fear of reinforcing barking, which is rarely the case. Um, or, well, actually, I, I, when I work with owners that have already tried this stuff without professional help, I usually end up with a lot of dogs that sit automatically oh, yeah. when they see a trigger. Yeah. Because the owner is always working on that sit while they're trying to do the classical work. So they always, the dog sees the trigger, the owner's like, sit, and then starts classical um, you know, food association feeding, looking at the trigger and feeding the dog, and now the dog sees the trigger and the dog sits. Okay. <laughs> so there, there's a perfectly good example of an operant sort of side effect to that situation. So we can kind of attribute, like, if we compare this to nose work, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I would think that the operant side of it, even if you trained and you, you, you tried to train nose work very classically, right, a lot of, mm -hmm. you know, mostly pairing and everything, um, if you get any kind of a final response and the oh, dog, yeah. the dog maybe <laughs> looks at you, right. To say, you mm -hmm. know, I'm at, I'm at source or, you yeah. know, you know, like that, that's the operant side of it. Right. Yeah. Well, that's what's always bugged me about nose work conversations. Not with you, by the way. Yeah. Um, but the idea that we don't operantly shape an alert. Or, or a marking of the odor, however you, you whatever your jargon is for it. Um, but I've always laughed at that because even if we're jamming food in the dog's mouth, you know, the minute that their nose is on odor, we're technically operantly teaching the dog to put their nose on the odor. Right. If we wait two seconds because we're really watching the dog and the dog rocks back, we're reinforcing the rock back. Right. If they get frustrated and put their paw on it, we're reinforcing the paw. So even if we're not intentionally shaping a behavior, it's happening based on our timing. And and we have no control over that. It, it just is, right? Well, yeah, we have no control over it. The only, the only thing missing from a true operant situation would be the application of a marker. Tell the dog that a reward is coming, that they did the right thing. But all a marker is doing is creating a delay for the for adding the food. So the fact that you remove that marker doesn't stop an operant learning experience. The dog still says, oh, as long as I stick my nose in here, I'm going to get cookies. The brain is always trying to make a cognitive association unless the dog is so over threshold that it's just not cognitively thinking anymore, operantly thinking anymore. Okay. That's the only time that I would say it's really lacking. But okay. that's never a case where a dog's in nose work, though. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially not if they're if they're working at home. Um, yeah, oh, yeah, totally. And even in a classroom setting, when the dog's over threshold, I don't think they'd be sniffing. Once a dog is so over threshold, they're not making 
an operant association, I would assume they're so over threshold they really can't sniff either. Usually they're in a state of just, I'm present and that's all you're getting. Okay, so this is taking me down like two different paths and, you know, I want to mm -hmm. definitely, um, you know, come back to the, so that the question I'm going to want to come back to, um, just so that you can remind me, because I have a really short, <laughs> I have a really, really short memory. It's, oh, I'm laughing because we're both, we're, we're both out of luck, but that's okay. Oh my gosh, oh, we're really in trouble. We're really in trouble. Yep. Um, so, so I have to spit this out before before I forget it. Um, sure. So the question is going to be around um, if you have a dog that has a tendency to get stressed out, you know, and mm -hmm. maybe talking about like you know a classroom environment is not necessarily the best place for that dog. Yeah. You know. And totally agree. So I, I want to you know I want to go back to that, but before I go back okay. to that, um, I want to talk a little bit about. You know, again, there, there's always discussions around methods and stuff like that, and I don't want this to necessarily get into a discussion around this method versus that method. Um, because, oh, totally. Yeah, because, you know, and, I, and I'm always the first one to say all methods work. Um, oh, yes, they do. <laughs> they, they do. They really, really do. And, and you know, and I'm all about, make, you know, um, teaching based on values and um, sure. rather than, you know, getting married to a certain tool or not. Um but I would, I'm curious, and this, this is just simply curiosity. I really have no idea what the answer is here. So if the dog has fear-based um, fear reactivity and uh -huh. you're working the dog at home, is uh -huh. there a, um, an advantage to doing more operant versus classical? Or is there an advantage to doing more classical versus operant? Or like like where on um, the spectrum do you think you're you're actually better off? And I, this, this is just, I, I yeah. have no idea. No, I think it's a really interesting question. I think it really it's it, it's an individual thing on the teacher and the learner. I think okay. if you're really talented and you're really focused and you're really good at splitting behaviors and breaking it down into tiny little chunks. The animals can learn very easily operantly. Okay. Um, and if you're a really big lumper and you really are trying to make the dog make pretty big, leap, big, big leaps, the associations are going to be harder, and the dog is probably going to be existing a lot more in an emotional connected state more classically is okay. what I'm going to guess. But it also depends on the breed of the individual. I mean, for my Shibas, if I do more than five or six repetitions of anything operant, they immediately get bored, and now they're making a classical association with the experience. They're saying, this is boring, this is annoying, this is overwhelming, this is becoming stressful, this is becoming negative. Okay. Okay. So, I mean, it is. And, I mean, it's important other reminder is that, and this is something that most people forget, is that operant is based on the perception of the individual who's learning. So uh, the individual's learning gets to determine what is positive, or I shouldn't even say what's positive, bad language on my part, what is reinforcing and what is punishing. Right. So being that the learner gets to decide, that also is still a, a classical association. So if the dog hates the treats, it's punishing. Right. And it's probably going to create a stressful and negative association classically with the experience. Okay. Versus if it's an amazing treat, and the dog says, this is fantastic, I'm loving every second of it, that it's creating a motivated, positive, classically conditioned experience as well as um, positive reinforcement-based okay. operant dog training. Okay, okay. So th this also kind of reinforces the fact that you really have to do the right thing for the dog. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. Every dog's an individual, and every human is, too. I mean, I I luckily pick dogs that learn the way I do. I don't have a really great attention span either. <laughs> so um, I pick dogs that are satisfied after five or six repetitions. In fact, my youngest is my biggest challenge because I've created a monster. I've created a, a very hardworking Shiba Inu, as much as that sounds like an oxymoron. <laughs> you have, you have. I've training. seen her. <laughs> True, but she has better training stamina than I do because I'm like, oh crap, you've gotten it right like 12 times. Now what do I do? I haven't even thought about that yet. <laughs> so it definitely is partially on the trainer and, and how talented they are too. I'm not an operant. I don't think very well operantly that way. I'm a horrible lumper. Um, my brain usually sits in, well, what's the, you know, what's the classical experience the animal's having? <laughs> and I get lost in that. Gotcha. Gotcha. Because I'm just thinking about, you know, the, the methods that I use to train my dogs. Because I, I use basically mm-hmm. the same method for all three of my dogs. And they're, and all three of my dogs are very much um, different individuals. I mean, they're, they're, I have three, I mean, as much as you can have three opposites. Um, although that sounds, <laughs> that sounds a little weird. Um, they, they are necessarily, um, they, they, are, they are absolutely opposite dogs. Yet, I use the same approach in training all three of them. Um, yeah, and I'm sure you get very interesting results where you you might tweak little tiny things for the individual, I but did, the method yeah. still works. I did, I did, but I also, you know, I taught them just a couple minutes at a time, a few times a day, and um, you know, and, and I broke down the behavior into small little bits and everything, and 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 it worked really well. And I've seen this um, with my students, my online students. Um, you know, they're, you know, they they they. It's it's very successful. It's very successful. Um, you know, but again, I don't I don't want to get into a methodology discussion. I just was curious about the you know like looking at why why was completely operantly trained, and he had a, a uh-huh. big therapeutic. Um, so I just didn't know if there was a um, you know a benefit of being on one side of the spectrum or another. But it sounds like it really depends on the dog. I think it does, but actually I think this brings it all the way around your other question, because when you said that you train them all basically the same way, but one of the things that stands out the most for me is that you train Y at home. Right. And that's where it became, even though he's an operantly trained dog, you made a huge classical association choice. You said, I want every association with this learning experience to motivate him and make him feel safe and comfortable. Right. And that's where you made a classical learning choice for your dog versus saying, oh, I took these other two dogs to nose work class, I'm going to take this dog to nose work class. Yes. So that's where I think it brings it all the way back to to that question about class versus no class and, and that sort of thing you mentioned. Yeah, and I actually did try him in a class, um, mm-hmm. and he was afraid to put his head in the box. There you go. Yes. So, you know, he couldn't make a positive association or have an operant experience because he was too stressed. Right, right. So this is also kind of coming back full circle back to that question I had where, you know, you might have dogs in a class that maybe, you know, belong learning at home. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, we, we Kendrick Companions, this is one of the things that we try and facilitate with all of our clients. And I can't speak for all dog trainers, but at least this has been very important to me and my business. Yeah. We offer classes, but our classes are in public. They're in the most public settings we can create, either pet supply stores or other um, associated establishments that want us in their training. 
because we want to try and create as much of a public application of the training as we can as quickly as we can. However, for dogs that that's not appropriate with, we design something that is. So maybe it's part in-home training, part public. Maybe uh -huh. it's the quietest park in the county. Okay. And then we work on the parking lot. I think that that's something that's missing from a lot of cookie-cutter dog training uh, models is that we say, oh, let's train a dog in an easy-to-train neutral setting. And the dog goes home, and the dog does fine in the living room. The dog can't do it in front of the house because there's too many distractions. And I think we have to work on finding that sweet spot for that individual instead of leaving owners and pets hanging because they don't fit into our perfect little cookie-cutter, you know, business models. Exactly, exactly. Now, it's, you know, coming from my perspective, now I do teach online, but I also teach in person. So, you know, this isn't saying, so I'm not just saying, you know, everybody should learn online. Um, because I, I also teach in person. I see, I see a lot of really great dogs. Yeah. So, so I'm not, you know, well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, you do a great job in both. Well, thank right. you. Thank you. Um, you know, so I, it, I, I'm not saying, you know, like if I was just an online, um, trainer, you know, you'd probably be thinking, oh, well, you know, she's obviously got a, a um, uh, uh, losing the English language here. Uh, <laughs> it's past both our bedtimes. It's okay. I know, I know, I know. Like in, in terms of like interest, you know, it's the this isn't a conflict well, of interest. It's like literally because I do teach people in person, and sometimes I see dogs that I feel like you know I wish you would take an online class. Well, that's what I was going to say. Is actually I think you're you're doing something that is in its infancy in this industry, and that's remote training. I offer remote training. I've had colleagues call me up recently who've done their first remote training session with a client, and they're like, I loved it. You know, remote training is becoming more and more popular for separation anxiety cases. It's becoming more and more popular for human aggression cases where the trainer really can't be that close, or if they are that close, they're not being therapeutic to the dog they're working with to actually demonstrate, say, handling or husbandry. Mm -hmm. I do a lot of that. Um, uh, I'm kind of known in the Shiba Inu community. And so I get a lot of remote clients that way who just don't have trainers in their area or they don't have trainers that like Shiva's. <laughs> and so, you know, I end up doing a lot of remote training sessions, teaching people using my own dogs as demo dogs, how to train a muzzle, how to train handling, how to train nails, every, you know, just simple things like that all the way up to, to greater behavior modification. And it works really well for the client. So a dog that is going to fail in a nose work class and maybe even is too nervous to do it in front of an instructor in a home. Right. I think remote training is a fabulous, or remote training or online classes or however you want to do it, is a great option um, for a lot of people. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And actually, this kind of, you know, I, 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 keep, I keep thinking of different questions and different things I want to talk about. <laughs> uh, this is just really exciting. So with nose work, it's really great for, we always say it's great for dog reactive dogs. And, mm -hmm. you know, human reactive dogs are not allowed to compete. Um, and basically, it's, be, it's a safety consideration, right? Sure. Because when the dog is having to perform, they're in close proximity to the judge and to volunteers. So, mm -hmm. but it sounds like there might be a huge therapeutic benefit to human reactive dogs to learn at home. Oh, I think there is, and I mean, there might even be room and avenues eventually to create um, 
venues that are human reactive friendly. So maybe that's videotaping a session like in Valor Agility or something like that where no humans are put at risk. Right. But I still think it's hugely therapeutic and, and it could be a great contributor to most behavior modification um, and management protocols um, for owners to even at least give their dog something else to do, especially if it can't go out in public much because of humans. Right. Um, you know, it gives them something to do, and it might have that similar therapeutic experience that Y had. So I, I certainly think – I wish it's an avenue people would try, even if it doesn't mean they can compete now. I think that's that's a really great point. Um, you know, it's it's also um, – yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's this has been really therapeutic for why and everything, but I'm also kind of thinking of it in terms of, um, you know, the old adage, which I don't necessarily agree with, but, it, it, you know, completely, but the old adage, a tired dog is a good dog. I think, I think there's some, um, you know, the, there's some truth to that. And the, yeah, I'll agree with that. Yeah, there is some truth to that. And the, the, the whole, um, you know, the fact that you're using 12.5% of the brain and mm -hmm. you wear, the, the dog wears out. So I can imagine yeah. like these human reactive dogs that can't go anywhere or these dog reactive dogs where, you, you know, you can't walk them around the neighborhood that, you know, if you're doing nose work, you know, even if it's just at home, I would imagine that it would just make it for a better pet. Oh, I think absolutely. I think a hundred percent. I mean, in homes where I'm not confident the owner can exercise their dog physically, you know, I'm, I'm the first person to give them my food dispensing toy handout. Um, and nose games are one of the things I talk about. You say, here, you know, this is what a snuffle mat is, or this is what a snuffle box is. Just teaching, you know, a private owner even the basics of teaching their dog to sniff things. And, I mean, God, again, back to my dementia dog, <laughs> right? my, my soon-to-be 15-year-old, poor old crazy lady i took her to barn hunt of all sports <laughs> she doesn't really have the attention span for nose work um but she she can't qualify a novice but she will always find the rat i will plop her down and she will march over to that hay bale and she will stare at it <laughs> and i'm like okay and she's a different dog for about 48 hours to you know two or three days where she's attentive and she's happy and she's in a much better place because of all of the oxygen and the blood stimulation to her brain. So if she's getting that just with canine cognitive dysfunction, I have to think that dogs that, you know, are human reactive and have to see humans every day would be benefiting from, from similar games. So it's just really it's the whole idea of it. Okay, so, well, I just have to put, put a plug in for this, for the canine cognitive dys dysfunction. <laughs> I have um, I have a student that I taught online. Um, we had to modify the exercises a little bit, but mm -hmm. the difference in her dog the, when she took the dog to the veterinarian, the veterinarian said that they that that he had never seen a bigger improvement in a dog with canine cognitive dysfunction, and wanted to know exactly wow. what she did. Fantastic! And it was all because so these of are protocols work. that need to be written up. Nudge, nudge. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We, we've we've got to we've got to do something, right? Um, yeah, no. This is great stuff, and I believe it. I mean, at least my own dog's had this. Now this dog's had this, and I mean, if there's ways of making this more accessible to owners who are struggling with this stuff, who may not be interested in, you know, they think this is a competitive sport or this is what bomb sniffing dogs do. If we say no, this is this is a therapy for 
for dogs with, you know, behavioral issues, you know, this could be really great for improving pets' lives. It's really good. It's really good. So this conversation has kind of done a little bit of a 360, and it's, um, <laughs> uh, you, you know me, I can go off on a tangent in about, you know, a split second, but um, I'm, I'm fascinated. You know, I started out just thinking, you know, why did my dog, why, why did why, why did why <laughs> improve so much? And this has really well, gotten is, me into like going down a whole whole lot of other avenues and everything. It's just absolutely fascinating. Yeah, well, if you think about it, if you think about where obedience originally came from, the first original quote-unquote dog sport, or shirt thunder, however you want to go, the whole purpose of it was to show off to the public your dog's manners and your dog's working skills. Well, eventually sports kind of went the other way, and it was what is the entertainment value of things we can do with our pets. But if you think about nose work, we're going all the way around the other way and saying we have something that's therapeutic for behavior that also can be a sport. So, you know, it's interesting how these things can, can come around and sort of fall into place. And it kind of, again, comes back to good manners is what led us to obedience. Well, now we're finding that, you know, using the nose, using that olfactory sense may be therapeutic to behavior problems and conditions. Oh, this is fantastic. This is fantastic. This is, um, yeah, yeah, it really has, has the old, um, the cognitive wheels going in my head. Yay! <laughs> so if we've done anything, we woke me up. Um, yeah, well, I'm sure we've babbled some jargon wrong, it's, you know, well past our bedtime, but we got certainly got the thought across. I think so, I think so. Yeah, it is, yeah, just for, um, you know, just so everybody knows, it's like 10 p.m. right now as we're recording this. Um, and we're old. And at we're least old. we're old at heart. Actually, no, 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 I think I'm a little bit older than you are. Yeah, but I'm only 35, and my bedtime is 9.45 is when I usually let the dogs out and head to bed. So. Oh, that's pathetic. <laughs> <laughs> it is pathetic. It's absolutely pathetic. But, you know, talking about how exhausted your brain gets, yeah. I mean, that, that's a perfect example. Um, and I'm just going to do my own little plug here and say, you know, I've branched out into coaching both professionally for business and compassion fatigue. Yes. And one thing that I talk about constantly is that, you know, the 40-hour work week was invented for manufacturing, not for service-based and not for intellectual um, production. So we actually have a huge problem today with most jobs now being service and intellectually based. And our brains are not really conditioned doing 40 hours of this kind of work. In fact, we're saying, you know, six a day really should be our limit. Really? Four is usually all we're really good for. So <laughs> I started today at, I started today with a meeting at 9 a.m. So I'm on hour 13 now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So that's why I'm allowed a 9.45 bedtime. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. I'll, I'll no. allow you that. I'll allow you that. <laughs> but, no, it's all good, but I certainly love these uh, these thoughts because we don't have these conversations often enough. I know, I know. We need to do this more often. Well, this, mm. is, this has been um, absolutely fantastic, and I'm really hoping that a lot of people get a lot out of this conversation. I know I did. Um, yeah, I'm super psyched to get other people's feedback. I mean, maybe I'm completely wrong and I've missed the study back there, and if so, please show me. I'm humble. I'm happy to be corrected. But if not, I think this is something that we really need to be examining. At least somebody does, <coughs> Stacy. Okay. So that, uh, 
so that we can, you know, have more tools, especially from a behavior consultant standpoint, more tools at our disposal that we know um, we can give confidence to the client that whatever they're dealing with can be improved. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I just, another, another plug for you. I think you're on the board of directors for the IAABC, right? I am. <laughs> you are. You are. See, I am talking to somebody yes. who, who's, uh, who's got the, got the goods. <laughs> got the goods. Well, and that's the thing is anybody who, who does, you know, any sort of professional work with dogs and is interested in behavior, this is my plug for IAABC, is we have a supporting membership. If you're not interested in being a, you know, certified consultant, supporting memberships still get just about everything. I mean, like 99.999% the same perks that a certified member gets education-wise. You get all of our webinars, all of our podcasts, all of our web content, all of our listservs, conversations with scientists and vet behaviorists. So you have access to this stuff. Oh. I mean, we've got one of my one of our board directors is finishing his master's in animal behavior, and he's pulling studies for us right and left when we want to know this stuff. Oh. So, I mean, uh, yeah, a supporting membership with IABC is invaluable, and it's under $100 a year. So, so this is something, you know, I'm just going back to like from a nose work perspective, nose work instructors might want to consider this. Absolutely. Especially if they want to understand the behavioral impact of nose work and, you know, other aspects that can benefit their classes. Like, what do you do if you have a reactive dog in class? Well, you could ask on the Facebook group. We'd be more than happy to give you input about, you know, therapeutic ways to make that dog have a better experience and vice versa, writing about dogs like why and how this has had a behavioral effect and have more people like myself brainstorming what that's all about. And that's how we learn and that's how we grow as an industry, both as a sport and, you know, for the well-being of these animals. Yeah, because basically what I would like to see, um, just because I've, I've seen the transformation in dogs, I would mm -hmm. love to see more application of nose work from a therapeutic perspective than what we currently do. Absolutely. Well, that's one of the best places to do it. I mean, and the, the cool thing is the connections. I mean, wouldn't it be cool if you could create a protocol for shelters, for shelter dogs to do nose work and see it, see the data from that standpoint, from a completely neutral perspective with animals that are struggling in a shelter environment? And what if they blossom and they get adopted at a significantly higher rate? That's, that's a what if, that's a hypothesis. Well, wouldn't that be freaking amazing? Well, actually, <laughs> nose work was, um, this is a full circle, because nose work was originally developed for the shelter dog. Oh, see, I didn't even know that. Yeah. I just learned something tonight. Yeah, it was. It was developed for the shelter dog, and it, you know, because shelters are very, uh, very stressful. They're, you know, it's high anxiety. And, um, and the founders of the sport were using this for the shelter dogs, and it actually turned into a sport. Well, there you go. So we just need to get way more data on what the experience was for the shelter dogs. I mean, it was a Clive Wynn study a few years back that talked about, you know, the three behaviors that any shelter dog needs to know to get adopted, which was basically, you know, responding to play invitations and things like that. And that was a paper. Could this be a paper? It could be. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. I mean, it's talking to the right people and getting people interested and really driving that information home and collecting the data. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, and I'm I'm also, I'm also interested in growing the sport. So I, I feel like there's I yeah. feel like there's a win-win here. Oh, totally, because that's how you get competitors. If people see the value in it, that's how they do it. Right now, I think the sport's interesting based on a almost a collector standpoint. It's the okay, we do agility, we do obedience, we do this. Let's do nose work. 
but you know, <laughs> let's make it mainstream and not, yeah. you know, gotta collect all the ribbons and the titles. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I hear you. I hear you. So this has been super. Yeah. This has been super. Um. Oh, 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 oh. Before we go, mm-hmm. I had asked people if they um if they wanted to know if they had specific questions. I did get a question. Oh, that, wow. Uh, yeah, I know. And, and, um, and I'm just remembering this. I'm just realizing that there was a question that I, I didn't I didn't ask you. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm hoping maybe we can talk through this a little bit. Do you have a few more minutes? Yeah, I'm here. I'm good. Okay, fantastic. I'm awake. You, you've, you've made my brain tingle. I won't be going to bed for a while. Oh, sorry about that. Sorry about no, that. No, it's all it's good. Called melatonin. Mm-hmm. I, I hear that helps. I hear that helps. More, uh, for more behavior milk? modification? No, no, to help you get back to sleep again. Oh, yes. No, I do have my melatonin. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Yeah. I also have my Headspace app. That's oh, okay, okay. Because I know I'm going to be up for a while because I've, I've had, like, insomnia for the last three days. Um, Download Headspace and tell me what you think of it. Okay, I'll have to do that. I'll have to do that. So, okay. So the question is, is um, and I'm you know, doing this off of, off of memory, but different ways of maybe helping your dog. If you have a, let's say you have a reactive dog and you go into the staging area and Uh the dog is very, very distracted. What are some ways to try to calm that dog down and lower the arousal? Um, are we talking about a competition environment? Or competition a environment. This is a competition environment. I okay. mean, I, I kind of okay. went to the whole idea of squishing. I mean, it depends on the dog. If, if, they, if they're calmed by, tact, by tactile interaction, that can help. Okay. Um, for some dogs, it's the act of escaping that can help them calm down. So back them up and restart them. Um, the one thing that doesn't help is nagging. Basically, one thing I can say by owning eight primitive dogs is nagging is not how you fix stress. <laughs> okay. Um, one of the things I do with my own dogs, and it's not specifically in nose work, but when we set up for obedience and my dog becomes too stressed, um, and I know that he's going to do one of two things, he's going sh- to either shut down or he's going to ring run, is I look at him and we practice deep breathing. So it, it has to be a skill that you need to work on. I like to have everybody have a contingency plan. That's what I do with my, my students is, well, what are you going to do if this happens? Okay. And it's knowing your dog and it's practicing something therapeutic. If it's squishing, if it's deep breathing. I mean, now a deep breath cues him to take a deep breath, which is pretty cool. Really? Uh, <laughs> yeah. If, I, if he lifts his paw, which is his stress signal for, for over threshold, okay. I look down at him and I say deep breath. And I take a deep breath, and he takes a deep breath. And it's very cute. Nobody sees it because it's so small. But I'm just like, what a good boy. And it's therapeutic for me, too. Yeah. And I guess that's another part of it is making sure that you're under control. Don't panic. Because if you panic and you start holding your breath, your cortisol goes up, your adrenaline goes up, and the animal goes, holy crap, now we're both freaking out. Yeah. So (laughs) make sure that you're under control, too. Yeah, or you have the the leash is too tight or you're you're transferring some of the – um, that's yeah. down, the, I mean, down the line. Yeah, I mean, when I've staged for barn hunt and my dog, let's say, is feeling kind of crabby and barks another dog, and I'm like, oh, God, now he's all worked up, and then his tail drops, and I'm like, oh, God, I'm losing my dog. I'll be like, okay, I can't 
leave the staging area because I, I won't qualify, but can we play sniffing games in the grass with cookies? Can we play touch? Can Do you want to rub down? Like, what is going to be therapeutic for him in this situation? How can I make him feel better? That's all I should care about. Right. Right. Absolutely agree. Did well, that answer the question, or did I just go off on a tangent? No, no, I think you did, and and I think well, okay. um, I think you came up with some additional ideas that I hadn't I hadn't thought of either, um, mm -hmm. which is really nice. And it also means that we're I'm I'm listen we're listening, right? We're 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 asking, you know, are there questions, and we're actually responding to them. It just <laughs> took me, you know, an hour of talking to remember that there was a question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think you already asked them all because you asked such great questions. So, oh, so well, you thank you. Questions too, so that's good. Thank you. Yeah, no, I I just remember there was an additional question, and I'm like, oh wait a minute, I I've got to got to ask this one. <laughs> so um, yeah, I mean, I certainly don't know all the rules about how you're supposed to treat a staging area and nose work, but at least when I think about reactivity and stress, that's my go-to solutions. Okay, I think that's fantastic. I think that's fantastic. Cool. Well, this has been this has been super. Do you have Do you have any questions for me from a nose work perspective? Um. Hmm. I, you didn't. You didn't. You, you didn't remind me to think of these things before. <laughs> uh, I didn't really prepare you that well, did I? No, you didn't. You didn't prepare me at all. Are you kidding? It was. This is. This is fun. Um. <laughs> but uh. This is thinking I got a question for you, and it's not about nose work. Oh. So what do you think of podcasting? I love it. <laughs> I love it. I I went crazy. Cool. I did the, the I'm calling it the mini pod. Mm -hmm. I did a I did a 15 minute um, recording this morning or this this afternoon. I'm losing track of time on what is nose work because <laughs> what I wanted to do was you know people who you know who might have a, a dog that's you know quote a pet you know versus a sport dog. Or people who, mm -hmm. who have never heard of nose work. I wanted to do just a 15-minute spiel of this is nose work, this is the origins of nose work, why it's, you know, what, what kind of dogs it's good for and why, um, mm -hmm. and really what the sport is. And then, you know, if you want to get involved, how do you get involved? And I, I talked for like 15 minutes with, you know, surprise, surprise, I can talk for 15 minutes. Um, <laughs> I know, I know. Um and I just had, I had a lot of fun with it. And this, this is just cool. great. So I've got, well, I've got a whole slew of people I want to talk to and people that I want to interview. And, you know, I'm hoping. Fantastic. That... Well, well, I'm honored to be your first interviewee and uh, your first guest. Absolutely. And I got to tell you, you, you know, I think your fans should know that you actually have yet to learn how to edit this stuff. So this was all one take. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> yes. So, so props to the fact that this is unedited podcasting, which I think is a whole nother level. Yeah. Um, I think it's pretty cool. Unedited without a, without a, a, you know, a list of questions ahead of time. Oh yeah. No, this was, this was totally legit unscripted. Yeah. Um, and hopefully forgivable because of that, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to hit the stop button in about two seconds here. So. Very good. Um, but I think this has been super, and I just want to thank you so much for being my, my first guest in my podcast. My pleasure. And um, well, thank you, and, and thank you for having me. Anytime, anytime. If we if we want to talk again, I would love to have you back. Oh, I would love to. Um, I mean, I very much enjoy being interviewed for podcasts. This is probably my sixth 
tense, something like that, because I think this is a great format for people to learn. And um, I, I got to say, anybody looking for BMOD or business coaching, feel free to contact me. But anybody looking for nose work, <laughs> um, Stacey, you definitely know your stuff, and I think you're making a, an excellent impact on the sport and, you know, its versatile nature in, in other parts of, you know, dog ownership. Well, thank you so much, Molly. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, agreed. All right. Have a good one. <laughs> you too. Have a great night. Bye. Bye-bye.